This is a special two-hour edition of Charlotte Talks, Building Trust, Where Do We Go From Here? A public conversation from McGlowan Theater at Spirit Square. I'm Mike Collins. The shooting by Charlotte Mecklenburg Police of Keith Scott, coming on the heels of similar shootings in communities around the country, unleashed a wave of anger and frustration unlike anything Charlotte had previously experienced. Over the course of the next two hours, we recap the facts as we know them, look back on Charlotte's history to see what we as a city did or didn't do that might have helped lead us to this point, and then look ahead to how we fix systemic problems and heal. Part of that healing is talking things out, but most importantly, listening, and that is where the public conversation of tonight's program comes in. And we have a nearly full house of people who may choose to join this conversation later in the program. Radio listeners during our live broadcast on Tuesday night can get to us via email at charlottetalks at wfae.org, through Facebook, where we're also broadcasting on Facebook Live, or on Twitter at WFAE. But let's begin with the sounds of events as they unfolded in recent weeks, sounds Charlotte had never really heard before. He doesn't have a gun. He has a TBI. He's not going to do anything to you guys. He just took his medicine. Keith, don't let them break the windows. Come on out the car. Keith, get out the car. Keith, Keith, don't you do it. Don't you do it. Keith, 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 don't you do it. Did you shoot him? Did you shoot him? Some of the protesters ran up and tried to kick or throw the tear gas back at the line of police officers. When you have an ongoing investigation, you don't release evidence in dribs and drabs. You want everything to have a complete picture before you release that to the public so that we don't have an incomplete no. picture of what might be the truth. The video does not give me absolute definitive visual evidence that would confirm that a person is pointing a gun. I did not see that in the videos that I've reviewed. What I can tell you, though, is when taken in the totality of all the other evidence, it supports what we've heard and the version of the truth that we gave about the circumstances that happened that led to the death of Mr. Scott. This meeting is about to get out of order and... Family, let's let's be calm. The, the rules for tonight. You got to, Mayor. If Mayor, we cannot, if we cannot, okay, if we can't, we're gonna recess and come back. And we can hear people. It's a shame that I cannot go down the street without fearing if I get stopped. What would I do? And if that's the case, if your officers can break proper protocol, is it okay for me to shoot back because I fear for my life? Is it? Is it okay? Right. 
Joining us now to take us through the events of the last few weeks are reporters who covered the demonstrations, the press conferences, and developments as they broke. WFAE Assistant News Director Lisa Worf, WFAE's Gwendolyn Glenn, and Glenn Birkins, editor and publisher of Q City Metro, all up here. Uh, when you think back on the events of two weeks ago, two weeks ago today, actually, what sticks out most in your mind? What, what leaps to the forefront? I think in my case, it's the, um, it was the quick escalation, how something, uh, especially downtown, uh, how it started so peacefully, and it quickly escalated into, into a violent confrontation, uh, heated emotions, uh, things that in my 16-plus years in Charlotte I had not seen. Uh, we did not see this kind of uh, eruption during the uh, Jonathan Farrell uh, after that shooting or during the trial or the hung jury. Uh, so I think to some degree we may have thought we were uh, immune to it. Yeah, Gwen, you were there the first night. You covered the first night of protests following the actual shooting, which also uh, escalated very quickly. What happened on that night? Why do you think things turned uh, unruly? Well, I think one thing was that the daughter of uh, Mr. Scott put out a video that went viral in which she was saying her father had been shot by police and she was saying he had been unarmed. And from there, a lot of people started to come to the area. Uh, as the night went on, people, more and more people, till it ballooned to about a thousand people who were there. So it was not something that was organized. I mm -hmm. think it was something that just happened. And at midnight, people were still coming and going to the area, even though some people knew that at a certain point tear gas had been released by the police, they were still going to that area. And that first night, of course, they stopped traffic in both directions on I-85 and set fires on the roadway. The second night, and I want to say this several times tonight, the protesters, by and large, were peaceful. Absolutely. I think yeah. there were, I would, I would categorize on that second night, I would, I would categorize the people downtown into three groups. There were a lot of peaceful protesters, people who came out to make uh, political and social statements. They were peaceful throughout. There were also people who, there were, there were also people who I described as, you know, kind of gawkers, people who came to watch, and they just kind of stayed on the fringe. And then there was a very small group of people who decided to use that opportunity to, for violence and uh, vandalism and destruction, but, but, but in no way did they represent the vast majority of the people who were out there. And those people were described by some as, as being agitators who were there specifically to cause trouble, to, to cause attention to themselves and to the, to the event that precipitated all of this. Were they from here, most of them, or were they from out of town? What do police records show us? I would say most of the people I talked to were from Charlotte, mm -hmm. and especially that first night, because it had just happened, and people came from all around the city, 
from the south parts of the city, the northern parts of the city, and people said they felt they wanted to be there. I talked to one minister who said that he wanted to give some direction to the youths, and people there, they were all ages, they were all races, and they, I would say, I didn't, that first night, I did not talk to anyone from out of town. Charlotte has never really seen anything quite like this, even during the Democratic National Convention when they were anticipating trouble and the police trained for it and there were officers here from all over the country, but nothing really happened and the protests that did occur stayed generally uh, quiet. Um, this time around that wasn't the case and we heard a lot, Lisa, about transparency, the need for transparency and I think one, one government official said, I believe in transparency, but partial transparency. <laughs> I'm not sure what that what that means. And this all centered around the release of the tapes, which, by the way, have been released, all of them, as of tonight, right? In their entirety. The body cam and the, the dash cam videos, there's about two hours and ten minutes out there, and it just was released a couple of minutes uh, before we came on, so we haven't had time to review it yet. And Mrs. Scott chose to release her cell phone video, her recording of the event, as it unfolded first. That's, one would have thought that that would have caused things that were already out of hand to get more so, and that was not the case. That was not the case. I mean, very quickly in the protests, you started hearing the rallying cry, release the tapes. And the, you know, the city said, hey, we got to wait till we have more um, parts of the investigation done. And then... She, Rakia Scott, released the tapes Friday, late, you know, sort of after mid-afternoon, and uh, Friday night, they were peaceful protests after that. Um, the city then released their tapes Saturday, um, and when they did, uh, CMPD Chief Kerr Putney, he said, people asked him, you know, did you feel pressure? He, he had a lot of people calling for the release of these tapes, and he said, no, I just felt it was the time now. Um, we feel like we have enough of our investigation at this Did it point. seem to you, or there, and maybe the three of you have experience with this in the last several weeks, uh, did it seem to you that the city had its act together on this? Were they of one mind, one voice, one body, one thought, or was, were they scrambling to come up with, what do we do now? There seemed to be some scrambling. I mean, to the point that on uh, Friday, they were thinking, it sounded like they were thinking of releasing the tapes, but then they said, well, these tapes are now in the custody of the, the SBI because it's their investigation. And then the SBI said very quickly to them, no, it's your tapes. Yeah. So There was a marked uh, change in the, in the demeanor of city officials as the week progressed. Uh, they toward, and this is my interpretation, of course, but early on in the week they seemed much more confident of, of what they were saying and their decisions. But as the as some of the some of the protesters got out of hand, I don't say the protests got out of hand, as some of the protesters got out of hand and there was the call to release the tape and they uh, faced more pressure, uh, there was a real change in their demeanor, uh, their access to local media uh, other than the other than the press release. Uh, I have to agree. I don't. I don't. I don't think that they were speaking with one. Voice. None of the tapes that we've seen so far. Now we haven't seen the two hours they just released as we went on the air. But the the the, the, the um, uh, Mrs. Scott's tape and the two police tapes that we've seen so far are very unclear about what actually happened. And in none of those t tapes do you actually see a weapon 
uh, being held by Mr. Scott. He may have had one. It's just difficult to see. So what have we gained by seeing those tapes? Well, a lot of people said they wanted them released because you talked about, they talked about transparency. And I heard a lot of people saying by not releasing them, they felt they were hiding something. So that was causing a lot of frustration among protesters I talked to, that they felt that the police, okay, if you are not hiding something, then release the tapes. I would agree that we, uh, what we gained is transparency. I don't, I don't think the tapes... Uh, will convince anyone one way or the other, but at least they're there. There have been tumultuous city council meetings on various issues in the past, but I don't recall one quite as out of control, if that's a nice way to put it, as Monday night's, last Monday night's meeting was. Would you agree with that? Did they anticipate that? Well, the passion and the frustration was out there during the protest. People were saying that they felt no one was listening. They felt nobody cared. They were saying these things. So I don't know if they expected the level of the intensity once that meeting got going. And I don't think they expected the kind of disorder that happened at times. Mm -hmm. There were people who spoke very eloquently, and we heard the young, there were children who spoke out eloquently, but I don't think they expected people at times, people spoke over others, there were chants, and no one could be heard. We have a minute left in this segment, and this morning there was the news that the city council have written, wrote an open letter to the community about all of this that the mayor did not sign. What's the story behind all of that? <laughs> I can't tell you we why the mayor did or did not sign that letter, but I know the mayor released uh, her statement earlier, and the city council sent their letter out today why she did not sign it. I don't know if we can. And, and we're not sure if she was asked to sign, so. Exactly. Well, this will go on. I'm sure we'll hear more about this in future council meetings and, and in future news reports, particularly now that they've released the other uh, parts of the tape. Later in the program, we're going to look at where we go from here, and we're going to hear from our people in our audience here at Spirit Square. Up next, we look back at Charlotte history to see what it can tell us about how we got to this point. Charlotte Talks Public Conversation continues on WFAE in 90 seconds. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7, WFAE and 90.3, WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. A special two-hour Charlotte Talks public conversation, Building Trust. Where does Charlotte go from here? We come to you from a nearly full house at Spirit Square's McGlowan Theater, where later in the program we'll hear from as many audience members as we can and also look ahead to what we can learn from what happened here two weeks ago today. And to help us figure out how we got to where we are today as a community, we're going to look back at some Charlotte history. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Charlotte has a history. <laughs> Brenda, uh, Brenda Tyndall is here to help us do that. She is the historian at the Levine Museum of the New South. Welcome back. Thank you. Susan McCarter is associate professor in the School of Social Work at UNC Charlotte and head of Race Matters for Juvenile Justice. Welcome back to the program to you. Thank you, Mike. And James Ferguson is founding partner and president of Ferguson Chambers and Sumter Law Firm and a civil rights pioneer here in Charlotte. Good to see you again as well. Thank you. 
Uh, let's begin with you, Mr. Ferguson, because you've been a member of this community for for nearly forever. Uh, he grew up in Ash- <laughs> he grew up in Asheville, so we have to cut him a break a little bit. Uh, but you you worked on civil rights at the height of the movement. How many of the problems that we thought we had solved during that era were really solved? Not many, if any. I um, you know people. People treat what happened in recent weeks as though that's something new, but it really isn't something new. And people people talk about the Charlotte way. <clears throat> people talk about the Charlotte way being coming together and talking and resolving our problems. But just just to give you a quick overview of of, of my vision of that, um, even before I came to Charlotte. Um, I saw violence in Charlotte. I remember when a young high school girl named Dorothy Counts tried to go to a school that was white uh, back in 1957. She was hounded. She was called every name under the sun except the child of God. There were adults there throwing rocks and bottles at her. That was a violent reaction to a child going to a school that the Supreme Court had said she should go to. A few years later, if I could just... just, sure, just go ahead. A few years later... Uh, two years before I came to Charlotte, I came in 67. Well, in 1965, uh, my former partner, Julius Chambers, had his house bombed. Reggie Hawkins had his house bombed. Fred Alexander, his brother Kelly Alexander, all of whom were African-American leaders in Charlotte, had their homes bombed, simply be- bombed because simply they were there pushing for the rights of African-Americans to participate in the society. And if I fast forward to 1996 or 7, we come almost exactly to where we are now. Police shootings and killings of African Americans was not new then. There were two African American women, as I recall it, unarmed, who were killed while they sat in their automobiles. There was a young man, uh, James Willie Cooper, who was in his automobile with his six-year-old daughter in the back seat. He was shot unarmed. Charlotte almost came apart at the seams then. There were protests then. We didn't have quite the same show of violence that we had then, but people were angry because they knew that something was not right. So Charlotte has a history of violence, just like all other communities in America, and particularly in the South, have a history of violence when society begins change. But we always like to say we're not Birmingham and we're not Selma, and we're the city that made desegregation work. Just an illusion? Uh, Very much so. Uh, We're not Birmingham, we're Charlotte. In, in Birmingham, four little girls were bombed in 1963. I'm telling you that in 1965, four homes where there were little girls were bombed. They just didn't get killed as they did in Birmingham. But it was bombing. It was Charlotte. It was, uh, it was the white community's response to a change in their way of life. Mm. Now, I don't mean to say that everything that happened was violent. The school desegregation process here was not violent in the same sense. There were no bombs thrown, there were no shots fired, but there was fierce and intense resistance to school desegregation in Charlotte. Judge McMillan issued more than 20 orders telling the school board to do what he first told them to do, desegregate your schools. They wouldn't do it. The school board fought it. Eventually, when they got to the point where the judge said, well, you got to do it, and you got to do it the way I'm telling you, since you wouldn't do it the way I, uh, you could have yourselves, mm-hmm. then they reluctantly 
desegregated the schools and amazingly claimed Charlotte as being the premier school system in the country for desegregation. Uh, so we have a way of revising and, 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 and uh, sanitizing our history. We have problems like everybody else do. We have problems right now. We have a lot of young people who don't know that history. Uh, they just don't know it, or they don't ap fully appreciate what people like you went through to get where we are today, even though we still have problems. I think life is better for most people. I think you could, you're better at that than I am. But you told an interviewer once that when you grew up in the days of full segregation, what you referred to as full apartheid, that African Americans were <clears throat> always aware of their race. You said if you were black, you couldn't escape it, and it didn't matter whether you were in the classroom or whether you were in a social setting. Wherever you were, it was just a stark fact <clears throat> of life that you had to deal with because most everything was defined by race. Still true today in the black community? I didn't even remember I said that, but I'm glad I did. And, and yes, uh, in, in, in the life we live now, I'm not going to say that it's like it was in 1942 when I was born into Jim Crow in Asheville, but we're still very much defined by race. And you look at any aspect of our society and you see it there. Right. And you still see African Americans on the bottom still defined by race. Uh, it's been that way ever since we came over on the slave ship. And it's continued that way. And we've seen violence. We've known violence. We've known degradation, we've known ter uh, terrorism, we've known it all. Uh, and still, as uh, Maya Angelou says, we rise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is radio, so people can't tell that as, as we sit on the stage in a darkened theater that many of the reactions that you're hearing are coming, I believe, not all, but many, are coming from African Americans. So there is a definite... Uh, uh, rec it's not true? Well, as I say, the lights are out and you all look the same in the dark. So <laughs> well, it's dark out there. They all yeah. look like African Americans. But now, <laughs> but Susan, <clears throat> Susan, who our radio audience cannot tell, is white. And you've been nodding fairly vigorously in recognition of all this. And you have been also working on racial equality for a very long time. And many people think we have a handle on this. We don't. No, I loved um, that Mr. Ferguson was able to explain um, when we look at statistics, we always see um, that disparity or that disproportionality by race and ethnicity. Um, when I first began the work that I do, it was around adolescent risk and resiliency. And I really focused on young people of color and their overrepresentation in the juvenile justice system. But what I quickly learned, um, thanks to some work here in Charlotte through Race Matters for Juvenile Justice, um, <clears throat> is that that separation that Mr. Ferguson so eloquently described is not isolated just in the criminal justice system. It's in our schools, it's in healthcare, it's in child welfare, it's, it, it's in every system that we examine. And it always shows what Mr. Ferguson described. Um, we see that 
although blacks and whites use marijuana at about the same rate, in fact, some studies would suggest whites use it a little bit more often, African Americans are 3.73 times more likely to be arrested for the possession of marijuana. We find in our school systems, despite the fact that um, school behaviors for what we call mandatorily reported offenses are the same or proportionate by race and ethnicity, we find for discretionary offenses, um, African Americans are 31 times more likely to have a school discipline action than whites who commit the same offense. Um, likewise, we see over decades, I mean, um, Brenda and I were talking earlier this week about, you know, 70s and then 80s and then 90s and then 2000, all the way up until now. We've known that infant mortality rates are vastly disparate by race and ethnicity, and we're not able to do anything about it or we're not trying hard enough. That would come as a surprise to a lot of people out mm. there, particularly a lot of white people who think the problem is over and why don't we get on with life. Uh, do you hear that a lot in, in your work? We hear that a lot. Um, we hear that we need uh, race-neutral policies um, versus race-focused policy. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the writings and the research that, that we review at Race Matters, um, the suggestion is that we have a racialized problem. In order to solve a race-focused problem, we need a race-focused solution. Mm -hmm. um, and so... And Brenda... So one of, the, one of the ways that I think will help us do that, to your point, Mike, is when we're not examining our own data, when we're not looking at those data disaggregated by race or ethnicity, and when we're not sharing them across systems, when we're just siloed with our own numbers, they look really bad. Um, but what people don't understand is they look the same in all of those other silos. So once we begin sharing and trusting, that's what your show is going to be about today, once we can reveal our own um, data and our own vulnerability, we can begin to see that this is a collective problem, um, which I'm hopeful our panelists later will talk about a collective solution. And Brenda, you, you're relatively new in town, but you're a historian, so you've done a lot of digging and scratching and searching for things. And this problem is not just one of prejudice, it's one of policy. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I would argue that we have to look at the uh, war on drugs, which really came of age in the 1970s under the Nixon administration. Um, I think we have to look at the stop and frisk policy. We have to look at the third strike policy to understand how um, African Americans and Latinos have been disproportionately um, subject um, to those laws and policies. So absolutely. What about urban renewal? I mean, the fact that we bulldozed an entire black community, Brooklyn, and the fact that we're now experiencing gentrification in traditionally black neighborhoods, what role does that play, if any, in what we saw last Tuesday, Tuesday two weeks ago Tuesday? It contributes to a recession of trust. Because when you don't feel as if you belong or you have a place in a community, you feel displaced. And I think it's really important for, for people to understand that, um, that race is only one part of our sort of trust conundrum. Part of our issue has everything to do with race, social economic mobility issues, among other um, uh, matters that shape 
notions of trust and most notions of belonging in this mm. community. Charlotte was mentioned recently in the New Yorker magazine uh, in an article written by Clint Smith, who is a Ph.D. candidate at Harvard University. And he wrote this, one cannot disentangle the state-sanctioned school resegregation that poor black students in Charlotte experience from the police killing of a black man waiting for his son to get off the bus from elementary school. The socio-political history of a city in a county with one of the lowest levels of upward mobility among all major metropolises is not a peripheral concern in an analysis of the racial tensions of the moment. It is the foundation of it. The school system... <clears throat> The school system in Charlotte did not resegregate by accident, just as police in Charlotte did not perceive Keith Lamont Scott as a danger by accident. The country we live in is one that we have built to be this way. The cities we live in were built this way. They were court-ordered. They were signed into law. We made these choices, and now we see the consequences. Talk about Absolutely. that. I think, you know, one, one of the things that I hear educators say all the time is that we want to produce global citizens. Well, how do you do that when you can't produce local citizens who have a, really, who have an understanding of the um, diversity of our community when our schools are 80% one particular race and 20% another race. And so when we did away with um, busing as a mechanism for desegregating schools, uh, what was also revealed is how segregated we are in terms of neighborhoods, right? So it's easy to revert back to neighborhood schools um, when you haven't uh, necessarily sought to, to do away with um, segregation um, at the neighborhood level. Um, and so I, I, I think we've placed Band-Aids consistently on systemic issues, uh, and now we're dealing with the consequences of that. J James Ferguson, you were in on uh, helping build or, or take down the blocks of Jim Crow and, and break down some barriers. When, the, when, when new barriers were put up, was it intentional, or were they unintended consequences, or just bad policy? What what happened there? I think it was a little bit of everything you just said. Uh, it was intentional. It had bad uh, consequences, and um, we still feel the effects of it right now. For example, uh, I mentioned earlier that Charlotte bragged about itself as being the premier desegregated school system in America. And that was in the mid-70s, and then in the 80s it began to change. And then in, in 1999, uh, the Swan case went back to court. It was called the Capaccione case because mm -hmm. one white parent said that his child didn't get into school she wanted to, and therefore she was discriminated against. And uh, very consciously, uh, the judge in that case dismantled the court order school desegregation system. And we said to the court at that time, judge, if you do this, we'll be back resegregated schools in a very short period of time. The judge entered his order, and within two years, Charlotte schools were resegregated again. So all, that had, all the progress that had been made over the past 20 or 30 years uh, was suddenly gone. Now, the worst part of that is that the community did nothing about that. Mm. 
We had a choice at that time to throw up our hands and say, oh, look what the judge did to us. That's terrible. And it's just too bad that, that our schools are resegregating. Or we could have, as a community, said, to hell with what the judge said. We want to have a diverse community. We want to have desegregated schools. And we're going to find a way to do that. And they could, we could have found a way to do that. We could have done something as simple as economic diversity. That would have given us a lot more desegregation in the schools than we have now. We'll come back and find out what you think, how we could have achieved economic diversity. We have to take a break. James Ferguson will come back along with Brenda Tyndall and Susan McCarter. And then we'll also move on to talk about trust and how trust is being built and how we can continue to build trust during our public conversation on Charlotte Talks on WFAE. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. We're coming from the McGloan Theater at Spirit Square. Charlotte Talks public conversation, building trust. Where does Charlotte go from here? Continues with uh, James Ferguson, an attorney and a civil rights long times. He, he was the civil rights movement in Charlotte. <laughs> or one of the many members, I suppose. Uh, Brenda Tyndall is an historian with the Levine Museum of the New South and Susan McCarter, associate professor in the School of Social Work at UNC Charlotte and head of Race Matters for Juvenile Justice. Mr. Ferguson, you just mentioned that one of the things we could have done was to encourage uh, economic diversity. How? Simply by doing it. And, uh, but decide, how? Well, you, you would do it by looking at our schools and looking at uh, the economic stratification of our society and you would require each school to have a certain number of low-income students and that plays out uh, by integrating people by class it plays out by integrating people by race it plays by out by bringing diverse groups together all the time we have to understand that that there is nothing about Charlotte that says uh, diversity is going to come about without intention you got to work on it. You got to think about it. You got to do it. But why is Every, it? Everyone would like for it to happen naturally, but it never has. And but it never why will. is it the city that in the 60s, where, where, where leaders in the city got together with African American leaders and went and sat at lunch re, at restaurants that were closed to blacks, and essentially said, "This is my friend, and we're having lunch here. Try and stop us." Why did that city disappear? Why isn't that same thing going on to encourage the kind of diversity that you're talking about and keeping the schools integrated? Well, it was done as an event. Uh, black students, it was done sort of to, to, to avoid protest uh, by getting together and going and saying we're going to do it together. You do that, it's done. Everybody forgets about it, you go forward. But it hasn't continued that way. Blacks and whites don't intermingle that much in Charlotte today. They probably intermingle more in the 60s than, than they did today, just from my own perspective on it. But my point is that unless someone is committed to bringing about that kind of change and follows through on that commitment, then you have change for a little while, but not for long. It's like what happened when the, the, the three uh, African-Americans, uh, unarmed African-Americans were killed by police in, in the mid-90s. Uh, out of that came a group called the Community Building Initiative. Right. Mm -hmm. And they've done some things, and they've done, they've stayed with it over the years. But after the shootings, and everybody was afraid that the city was going to come apart, after it didn't, things got quiet. 
and nobody much cared again. And now here we are with what happened a week or so ago. I think one of the tropes in how we've handled moments of sort of racial tension is that we've done it from a top-down, in, in a top-down manner. And what that does is it evacuates people um, from participating in um, deliberating about how they choose to be governed by our leaders. And so I think when we've elided certain people and voices from the conversation, we get these very monolithic ways of dealing with community issues. And so while um, you, you pointed to the 1963 Edens, mm -hmm. um, which were um, the uh, mayor as well as African-American leaders getting together, who's absent from those kinds of deliberations. And the other question we should ask is, who, could, who can afford to go to some of the um, upscale um, restaurants and hotels for which they were lobbying for um, you know, desegregating those spaces? And so well, the, even that's a very limited um, articulation of um, sort of racial um, progressivism, if you but will. But we had several decades of integrated schools, and the idea was that if we all got together and got to know each other, then we wouldn't have to do this artificially. It would just happen because we would realize that we have more alike and more in common than we didn't. What happened to that? We, we've had, we have a, a, an African-American president. We have had three, by my count, African-American mayors in this town. We've had members of city council. We had an African-American as head of the, uh, the county government, the uh, county manager. We, we have had two African-American police chiefs. Why do we still have these problems? Why do we have the problem that you, you talked about, and that is, uh, uh, Susan, uh, uh, over-representation over of minority youth uh, and uh, disproportionate minority contacts with police? Why? Because, because we of racism? Exactly. We haven't eradicated <laughs> this. But we have a, but, but we have a government that's had African-American leadership. We have an African-American police chief. But then we're talking about structural issues as well for which folks are adhering to despite their, their race, right? Um, and so we have to really think about the pervasive um, uh, implications of a system of racism. We heard a lot in the last couple of weeks about implicit bias and institutional racism. How do you recognize that very quickly? Because I'm running out of time. All you have to do is look 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 at our society. We it, it it used to be it all stemmed Mike from white supremacy, which really developed from slavery and, and came out of go all through the years. But um, what we talk about now uh, is is white privilege, and we look at what we see. What we're talking about is a society where it is assumed that white people will be on top, and the assumption is correct because of all the things that Susan and, and, and Brenda have both talked about, is that uh, when you look at the measures of the quality of life, you find that African Americans and other minorities are on the bottom in housing, in wealth, in uh, schooling, in uh, uh, income. Uh, you look at any aspect by which we measure, and we're on the bottom. And Charlotte is on the bottom when it comes to upper mobility, which means if you're born black and poor, that's where you're going to remain. As we head to the middle of the century, in which, at which time white people will become the minority, will this change? No. No? No. no. It won't. Because right now, Mike, white people hold the reins of wealth. They hold the reins of power. And uh, the, you've heard the saying, uh, no one gives up power willingly. 
It has to be wrested from them. So I have so, to. And, and that I will happen unless it's shared. It needs to be shared. So I have, to, I have to end this segment, but I also have to ask you, since you've been at this so long, <laughs> do you ever get tired and do you feel like you've accomplished something? We have accomplished a lot. I mean, we, we're here. We're here and we're talking. That's an accomplishment. But we just haven't tackled the systemic aspects mm -hmm. of it. We've allowed ourselves to believe our own PR about that. James Ferguson, civil rights pioneer. I think that's not uh, inaccurate to say. Brenda Tyndall with the Levine Museum of the New South and Susan McCarter, head of Race Matters for Juvenile Justice. Thank you all very much. Thank you. We're going to move on to talk about what people have been doing in Charlotte to build trust. One of those people is former CMPD homicide detective Gary McFadden. He retired, but he returned to work in the office of the chief specifically to improve police relations with the community. And he spoke recently to WFAE's Lisa Worf. You talk to a lot of different groups. How is the conversation different when you're talking to a group that's primarily African-American, primarily Latino, or primarily white? Well, it's trust. I, I did this once where I spoke to an event for about 15 minutes. They were engaged and we were talking and they loved me and everything. And I had a, a guy had an iPad in the corner of the room. And all he did is run back up to the microphone, which we planned, and says, and by the way, he's a law enforcement officer. The body language changed. The mood in the room changed. Everything changed. And this is an African-American group? Mostly African-American group. Now, that to me or to someone would be insulting. So then should I still talk to that group? Yes. And so I've showed them, look how you change. Why? Oh, because you're a cop, you're a cop, you're a cop, you're a cop, you're a cop. Okay. Were people able to, to loosen up and, and no, but it's still attack, talk? Attack, 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 attack. Why, 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 why? Attack, attack, attack. And and we get that. And and I get from you that you feel like there's room for improvement all around, including your profession. It is room for improvement all the time, absolutely equally on both sides. I have traveled to some cities and I try to implement programs. And you know what I get? We're not in the program of hug a thug. They get that. And what do you say to that? I mean, you, you, you fight with it. You fight with it. You, you try to get them to understand it with it, but it's, it's hard. But, you know, if you, if you give me that moment, I may can get to you. And I've had that to happen. So when you talk to groups that are mostly white, how is that conversation different? Well, it's different because most people classify it as white silence. Write a check. Give out toys, have something at your church, have the round table meetings, bring the guy in with a Ph.D. and has wrote the last five books and have him speak on the topic. And then you look around in the audience and the audience looks like you. And then if you invite someone, then you invite your classmate who is also an executive at the bank or your business partner. That's safe. That is very safe. But if you invite somebody who doesn't have anything close to you. That's the conversation you want to be in.
what has stood out to you that people have been saying that you feel like isn't being listened to but should be? They're, they're angry. Um, nobody understands the other. It's kind of like giving that speech and you say, and there are some good police officers. The seven seconds you said that, but your whole next two hours is boom, 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 boom against the police. That's not going to work. And the same thing with the officers. Why do why they keep doing this? 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 Well, I'm not saying all black people are bad, but why they keep doing this? Why they keep doing this? So both sides have to stop for a minute and say, what are we what are we going to do? Detective McFadden, thank you for your time. Thank you. So to continue the conversation on what it takes to build trust, we're joined now by Sean Corbett, who took it upon himself to play a part in building a relationship between African-Americans and police. He's the owner of the Lucky Spot Barbershop, but more importantly, organizer of the Cops and Barbers program. Reverend Clifford Matthews is pastor at St. Luke's Missionary Baptist Church and a member of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Opportunity Task Force. Thank you for being here. And the Reverend John Claycorn is pastor of Caldwell Presbyterian Church and part of the Charlotte Clergy Coalition for Justice. Welcome. All three of you. In all three of you, including many, many others in the African-American community and in the government and in the police department, etc., have spent years trying to build this relationship, to build trust back and forth. And then something like what happened two weeks ago occurs. What do you think about when that happens, Sean? Um, pretty much. I was at shock at first, but then it made me realize that there's just so much more work to be done. You can't let one incident define your city or define the people of your city. And you just look at it and say, okay, well, what do we learn from this situation? How can we make it better? Because at the end of the day, like when I created Cops and Barbers, like one, one event, one town hall meeting, one situation can't end what we're dealing with. You know, Cops and Barbers was to spark a conversation, to continue to work. So I look at it like it's just more work to be done. Because, like I said, you can't take one event. Like someone asked me, well, look at what happened. Do you think that cops and barbers work? I said, you can't gauge that. Think about how many situations could have happened that didn't happen. You know, I talked to officers. Like, I have a predominantly black barbershop. And when cops and barbers first started, white officers come in there, we get completely silent. People start leaving and it, it get real crazy. But now it's like, hey, what's going on, um, dance or whatever it may be. But the thing is, even in the aftercare, this is the stuff that y'all don't see on the news or the news doesn't show. Even the aftercare of the Cops and Barbers movement, these officers are still in contact with these kids. Yeah. And so, like, the TV, CNN, they don't show that. So just think about how many situations that could have happened. Yeah. But now I know this kid. Or you have a kid that, that usually F-12 or I hate the police, but turn into, but I like you, though. Yeah. You all right. You, I, don't, I don't know about the rest of them, but you okay. But that's the key, isn't it? Getting to know somebody on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But that's a lot of people to get to know over a course of time. How do you speed that along, Reverend? One of you. What are the two reverends? Take that. Well, <laughs> um, 
I think that relationship building is utterly vital and it is shown to transform social movements uh, throughout history. Um, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. Uh, my sense is that uh, in Charlotte, uh, we're sitting in an old Baptist church. I'm sitting beside my Baptist colleague. Uh, there's language we get from the church, and that is to confess and repent. And uh, we should have seen this coming. We knew it was coming. Twenty years ago, Charlotte was found to be among the worst cities in the country for interracial trust. Uh, at the same time, our schools were resegregating. For the subsequent years, we were hearing report after report after report, whether it was from Harvard or UNC, about deeply uh, entrenched poverty that is highly racialized. A year ago, we had uh, the Farrell case, the Farrell case, which looks exactly like this one. And we just sort of held our breath. And, and uh, so we should have seen this coming. We're going to come back and hear from Reverend Matthews in a moment or two. We have another hour to go in this two-hour edition of Charlotte Talks. More conversation about building trust. Then we invite our audience here at Spirit Square to join into that conversation, as well as our listeners on the radio. We're coming right back at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. This is a special two-hour edition of Charlotte Talks, a public conversation about building trust. Where does Charlotte go from here? We're coming to you from Spirit Square's McGlowan Theater in the aftermath of a shooting by police of an African-American man, Keith Scott, that set off several nights of demonstrations. Most of the protesters were peaceful, but there were some violent outbursts during which property was damaged, bystanders injured, and one person was killed in a civilian-on-civilian shooting. This is something that most of us believed could never happen here, despite what we had witnessed in other cities. The fact that it did happen here was a wake-up call, not only for Charlotte, but for the rest of the country. It demonstrated that anger and frustration over a lack of trust in police by the black community had reached a point where it could no longer be contained, even in a town that had a reputation for handling these things the Charlotte way. The events that started with that shooting two weeks ago today shook our city to its core. They also raised more questions than answers, but we're trying to find some during this public conversation here on WFAE. In about 15 minutes, we're going to open the microphones to members of our audience here. But first, we continue our conversation with those who have been working to build relationships and trust between Charlotte's African-American community and police. Sean Corbett, organizer of Cops and Barbers and owner of the Lucky Spot Barbershop. Reverend Clifford Matthews, pastor of St. Luke's Missionary Baptist Church and a member of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Opportunity Task Force. And Reverend John Cleghorn, pastor of Caldwell Presbyterian and part of the Charlotte Clergy Coalition for Justice. We need to hear from you, Reverend Matthews. You're a member, of, as I said, of the Opportunity Task Force, uh, which is working on something we talked about in the last segment briefly, economic mm -hmm. mobility. Uh, you're doing a lot of listening on that mm -hmm. task force, and I'm told that by the end of the year you will have come up with some concrete suggestions, not binding, but mm -hmm. suggestions on where we might be headed. What are you hearing? Well, um, I would say starting with the Chetty study that kind of got the task force going, it became clear that Charlotte had a problem when it came to opportunity mobility. How do you move people from the bottom 
to the top. Charlotte ranked 50 out of 50 for cities right. in that study. When they did some more reexamining and looked at the numbers a little different and examined counties, Charlotte was 99 out of 100, with the only other county being Baltimore that was 100. So I think it was clear there was something happening. There was a problem that was coming before the Charlotte community. How big a, how big a factor is that in mistrust of police, mistrust in authority? Well, I think when you look at those indicators that really help a community define mobility, those five things, uh, family structure, uh, segregation, education, uh, when you start looking at income inequality and social capital, those five things are greatly impacted by race. And I think that the reality is the Economic Opportunity Task Force did not begin looking at race as the issue, but the data suggests when you start looking at the data and looking at what is happening across the board, you begin to see there's only one explanation and that has to be the issue of race. And while that is hard, that is hard to grapple with, uh, it is the reality that the data will not let us go away from. And the real challenge is not so much um, to recognize the presence of systemic racism. The real challenge is how do we continue to have a dialogue? How do we begin to move things forward? Because we do have the task of trying everything we can to lift persons at the bottom to some kind of parity when it comes to opportunity, economic opportunity, income uh, equality, and it's a hard task. Is the shooting that happened here two weeks ago today comparable to some of the violence that we've seen police perpetrate on uh, African-American men, seemingly innocent in many cases, of doing anything wrong? Is it different this time because the shooting was allegedly committed by an African-American officer? I don't think so. I think what is different now is all those years that nothing basically had. Since 19, 1990s, I wasn't here then. I only moved here in 1999. But what has happened is the pain that communities are experiencing has become more heightened. And so I believe that the reality of what happened in Charlotte was magnified by the fact that communities are very segregated, that the school system is very segregated, that gentrification is happening all over this city, affordable housing is a major problem. And when you look at all of that, the stress and the stressors, it's as if there were, this was an outburst waiting to happen. And I, I, I really, don't know how to, let me get in trouble a little bit. Now, I always get in trouble. Go ahead. Well, I really don't know if, um, uh, wow, well, something, was, no, no, no. Something was going to happen to cause Charlotte Mecklenburg to address the issue of persons who are at the bottom who feel there is no way to get out. Mm. 
Glenn, Glenn Birkins is also on the stage with us. He was in our very first segment. He's the editor and publisher of QCityMetro.com. And I want to bring you into this conversation, too, because you cover all of this. When you talk about the pain this community feels and that you report on, is it economic pain? Is it prejudicial pain? What's the core of it? I think there's some of all of that. But I, but I also believe that we have to be careful that we identify the problem for what it is. Yes, there are economic problems, there are social problems, but at the core, we also have a policing problem. And we can't, and we can't gloss over that. When I, as a college-educated, professional black man, fear the police, that is the policing problem. That's, you not, know, a, that's not an economic problem. Chief... Uh, Chief Putney, Chief Kerr Putney told me on this program that to this day, and he's the chief of police, gets a knot in his stomach when he sees blue lights. Now, that's the chief of police. You are uh, the head of cops and barbers. And I still do. Like, okay. What, yeah, like, I mean, like, that's, that's common. What's the crux of the problem between police and African-Americans? Is it distrust of African-Americans in the police? Yes. Is it also distrust of the police in what they may discover because they're inter interfacing with an African-American male? Nah, I think it's pretty much I don't know you. And I know what you're capable of. I don't know you. So well, They don't know me when they stop me for speeding either. No, I'm talking about how we... Not that that's ever police. happened. But. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking about... That knot that you're talking about, that knot that you brought up, right. for a black man, I don't know you. I don't know what your intentions are. You're supposed to be here to protect and serve me, but I really don't know what your intentions are. So that's what that knot is about. Mm -hmm. And so, like, this problem that we keep talking about, I do a lot of these. But I think the first step is making these officers accountable to be a part of that community. Because as long as you ride up and down the street and look out your window, out of your car window and look at me, you don't know anything about me. I don't know nothing about you except what you're capable of. So that continues to cause that confusion and that friction. So when we finally do have an encounter, we both on, we both on wit's end. And it's, 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 almost, it's, it's, it's like them Western movies, that, that 12 o'clock showdown, who's going to move first? And, and that's the honest to God truth, because that's what we say in the barbershop. That's that's what the conversations are. Sure. You, you you have some tax paying citizens that never been in in trouble at all still have fear of getting pulled over because of what might happen. That's where the problem is. But we've been hearing anecdotally from people in the African-American community. That this has been going on forever, that this is something that is just known. It's talked about. Mothers and fathers talk to their African-American sons about this, about how not to get killed when you encounter a, a police officer. This is something that we don't talk about in the white community. And there are those in the white community who have said, because of situations like this around the country, things like, if only the victim had done what the police had asked them to do. And some of those same critics will then point out the police records and the previous crimes committed by some of these people. Who's right? Well, what I would say is 
that when it comes to the African-American experience with policing, uh, it is both bad and good in the sense that there is a sense that um, at its best, law enforcement does have a role to play in our communities. And I guess the issue that is at hand is how do we help officers, many who I love and respect, deal with the issue of implicit bias. I just came from a workshop put on by Race Matters and Juvenile Justice. And I would tell you as an African-American male that is in the prod that has raised two African-American men and now rearing two more African-American boys to men, to, to, to manhood, I was absolutely shocked at the uh, level of implicit bias that all of us deal with Maya Angelou talks about, talked about words, how words have power, and they get in the wallpaper, get into the upholstery, get into your clothing, and then get into you. That's kind of like what systemic racism and implicit bias is. It's just something that impacts all of us, even African Americans are impacted by implicit bias. We've heard in previous segments people citing uh, statistics about the number of uh, African men, American men who are pulled over by police, who are incarcerated by police. We know that we have too many black Americans in jail and that, that, that that's policy, et cetera. And I could, I've got a, sh a whole stack of facts and figures here, most of which could not be recited by people in the African American community, but they know it, mm -hmm. anecdotally know it. Mm -hmm. What impact, what role does that play in setting themselves up for bad encounters with the police? Policy has to change. One of the things I think that we can also talk about when it comes to policing is also how do we deal with persons who have committed a crime and have been labeled a felon? How do we allow them to come back into society to not have to worry about checking a box and help them deal with the issue of finding hope. Because one of the things that we do know is that this outburst that we witnessed last week is really a cry. It's, it's, it's not so much it's anger, but it's, it's, it's anger that wants to be heard yes. because it wants somebody to hear my pain. Yes. You. Sean, you started Cops and Barbers uh, when your son Khalil turned 18, and he turned 18 around the time that Michael Brown was shot and killed by police in Ferguson. And you said to yourself, I don't know how to teach him. I don't know what to say to him about interfacing with police, but you knew that you didn't want him to be in one of those shaky videos. Yeah. What did you say to him? What do you tell people to say to their African-American sons? How should they act around police? I think they should be truthful with their children. Don't, don't, don't have them out here in the dark because there is a problem that's out here. We can't ignore it. And just get more involved. Like I was a parent just like anyone else, but I knew that all my encounters with law enforcement weren't positive up until that point. And so I really didn't know how to teach my son how to deal with a situation like that. I just bought him a car, 30-day tags. I can see him coming home on a Friday night, him and his friend, and get pulled over. And just watching them tear down their community in Ferguson, I was like, I don't even know how to 
tell my son how to maneuver through that. So how many more people don't know? So the fact that we recognize that it has a problem, it's all of our responsibility to get involved. Like, these things are great. Like, we can talk statistics till the cows come home, but the real work is done right out here on the street. Because yeah. that's, that's where the problem lies. And speaking of, of uh, being out on the street, uh, Reverend Clayhorn, you were out on the street during this, these riots, during the demonstrations. Why did, you, why did you feel you needed to be there, and what did you hope to achieve by being there? Um, multiple reasons. Uh, I missed out Tuesday night, um, but when I saw what happened, and then throughout the day, Wednesday, I heard so many conflicting accounts, I said, I've got to see this for myself. That was one reason. Another reason was to put on uh, the minister's stole and try and stand uh, for peace and to bear witness to peace, to both sides. Um, and to walk among the protesters and listen to them um, and uh, try to learn and try to feel uh, and try to keep people safe, not because I'm any kind of a superman, but only because I hoped that the stole I was wearing might stand for something that might introduce some calm. Your organization, the one that you're associated with outside of the church, is the Charlotte Mecklenburg Opportunity Task Force, and I believe, is that right? Uh, the wrong one, the I'm sorry. Coalition. Co the Charlotte Clergy Coalition for Justice. You work with a lot of different causes, uh, gay rights, etc. Right. Uh, how does this compare, the, this racial issue that we're suddenly dealing with again in the white community that you guys have been dealing with in the black community forever, how does this compare to those issues that you mm. deal with? I think for people like me, and we're on the radio, so I'm white, um, it, we have to understand it's bedrock. We have to understand it's bedrock to everything. Um, my church is intersectional in that we have diversity of many kinds, but, but there are no issues that have a 400-year-old roots in the ground like this one. So, this has been going on since slavery mm -hmm. in various different forms and at various different amounts of uh, pressure, I suppose. You guys have been working to build mm -hmm. trust, mm -hmm. doing your best. It's a long, hard slog. Mm -hmm. yeah. What works best? Well, I, I want to say, when you talk about racism and the other isms and phobias, I want to say that uh, this is what I come to understand. If a person's racist, uh, they are probably sexist and no doubt homophobic hmm. because <laughs> it, it, no, the same root, the same root that gives us systemic racism gives us the other isms and phobias. Yes. So when we deal with the issue of race, we then open up a dialogue about sexism and homophobia right. and transphobia, things that we have to deal with if we're going to be a community. And uh, that, is, that is one thing. I think also the issue of how do we stay hopeful and how do we, you know, what do you see working to build trust? I want to say it, 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 while dialogue may seem boring, dialogue, breaking bread, our churches, uh, St. Luke and Caldwell, we have relationship. We get together. Our members, we break bread. Uh, we have dialogue. We're coming to know each other. So breaking bread, having conversation, and I think also education. 
And, and, and I know Du Bois talked about the, the, the burden of black folk and how we always have to be the ones to educate. Well, that is true. And, and just like we educate our boys how to carry themselves when confronted by police, we also have to educate broader society. Listen, this is what's happening. This is who I am. Right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to turn the house lights up. We're going to pass microphones around. We're going to have the public get involved in this public conversation on Charlotte Talks on WFAE. We're coming right back. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE, a public conversation building trust. Where does Charlotte go from here? I'm Mike Collins. We're at McGlowan Theatre at Spirit Square with our guests, Sean Corbett, Reverend uh, Clifford Matthews, and Reverend John Claycorn, and also Glenn... Birkins. Uh, uh, Birkins. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. Glenn Birkins, who's <laughs> editor and publisher of Q-City Metro. Man, if it's not written down anymore, I don't know what, it, I don't know what to say. <laughs> We're going to open the phones, I'm going to open the microphones on the floor here. I really don't know what to say, do I? And let's begin over, over here. Welcome. I'm, I'm Deborah Franklin. I'm a bus operator uh, in the city of Charlotte. I am not a city employee. Bus operators are employed by Transit Management of Charlotte. Hmm. And the original, I was homesick on Tuesday night, and the original picture that I saw on TV, which we all saw, was the bus in the cloud of smoke. With, uh, with the uh, police officers. And I just wanted you to include the bus operators in this conversation. Uh, there was a, a curfew at uh, midnight, but the operators had to roll. We were not on a curfew. And so um, I have operators still dealing with what happened mm -hmm. that night, and there were operators injured that night as well. And, and um, the um, passengers um, belong to the city of Charlotte as well. And so we do support our passengers. And as far as transparency, we don't really know how and why we got involved. Hmm. All right. And we have somebody over here. Uh, my name is Jacqueline. Um, I live here in Charlotte. Uh, I actually have a colleague who is a partner of one of the CMPD, and one of the comments she had made to me this week was that the police seem very reluctant to get out of vehicles and to uh, patrol the city now, and so they've seen a spike in a lot of the uh, crimes. And for me, I felt like maybe this just means that we need to have more discussion on uh, uh, training. And so I'm not sure if that's something that has started to being uh, discussed in the city, because I think that's a big part of the problem. I don't know if it's been discussed, but I'm, I am so glad you mentioned training. Uh, I think, because I think that is, that is actually the root of where we are. There was a time when police officers routinely engaged in high-speed chases. That's not, that's not so common anymore. We've learned that in those situations to de-escalate, uh, but we have we have not learned to de-escalate other police actions, and I and and I guess I would ask the rhetorical question: Was it was it necessary to arrest Mr. Scott in the first one minute? What would happen if 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 officers were trained 
to simply pull back and not go up and beat on the windshield with a, with a baton. Uh, so I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned training because we can talk about race and we can talk about uh, economics and all of that all night. But at the end of the day, uh, not just here in Charlotte, but across the country, uh, I believe we have what is essentially a civil liberties issue that is disguising itself as a racial issue. It's been said that when that when black that 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 when America catches cold, black America has pneumonia. And but the but there's a funny thing about contagions. They have a way of spreading. Mm -hmm. So it may not be your problem today, but give it time. Right. Good evening. Um, I want to thank you guys for having this discussion and allowing us to sit on, on it, sit in on it. I think it's really, really important. I just want to call out um, three quick points of fact as we continue. Um, witnesses say that there was a white officer that shot Keith Lamont Scott. A black officer arrived, excuse me, an African officer arrived 15 minutes later to perform CPR. There is no African American officer on the videotape anywhere. So I'd just like to make mention of that as a point of fact. Also as a point of fact, um, Raekwon Borm has been framed for the murder of Justin Carr, who died at my feet. I'd also like to mention on the timeline that protests did not become quote unquote violent even after Justin Carr was killed by CMPD, who said over their speakers, I just shot someone, even after that, protests were still peaceful until SWAT came out and pushed and tear gassed and shot me included with a rubber bullet. So these are not violent people in Charlotte. These are people who formed two nights of peaceful protest and were pushed and pushed. And we have videotape of SWAT officers pushing us and hitting us and throwing tear gas at us. And I was even shot with a rubber bullet in my leg and I'm only four foot 11, 164 pounds. My very last point, and I appreciate your extra time, is that I've seen white women get the right to vote. I've seen white men get the right to drink. I've seen white children get the white right to marry gay, and we're still fighting the same fight. If you in this room got as angered and upset and outraged about what's going on, not just in the city, but all over the world, as you do about your rights to vote, as you do about your right to drink, as you do about your right to, get, to have gay marriage, this problem will be over. Just like I saw in a matter of minutes, people get bike lanes in Charlotte. Thank you. Mm. I, I want to I wanna say one of the things we as a community, as a nation, we have to do, and I thank my sister for her comments, is we have to be willing and able to have a conversation that talks about policing and training and bias and all of that. But we have to be able to have that conversation in a way that also values the sacrifice and the contributions of our police officers. I think one of the tragedies is that we have been pitted in this reality that we have to either say we are for black lives matter or blue lives matter. And the reality is that there is the sense that while there is a definite problem, when it comes to African-Americans and the criminal justice system and how they're treated and how often that begins with a stop. There's also the fact that good folk who are good citizens and good people 
are also wanting to give back to community in policing. So I don't want us to see this as an either or, but you can call for reforms. We have to have reforms. You have to have transparency. But you also need to be able to say to an officer who is giving themselves to community, thank you and job well done. Right. Amen. And I want to I wanna point out that we invited uh, members of CMPD to be with us tonight, and the best we could do was the recorded conversation between Lisa Worf and Gary McFadden that you heard earlier in the program tonight. Uh, where are we going next? Yeah, Mike, back here. Mike. Okay, go, wherever you are. Yes, my name is Thomas, uh -huh. and I wanted to speak on what y'all spoke on earlier about the violent protests. As the sister down there said earlier, they weren't violent. Right. I've been here since Tuesday when it all started. Um, it wasn't a violent protest. We were pushed. And eventually, if you push someone into a wall, eventually they're going to fight back. I was right beside Brother Justin when he passed away. When he fell, I was as far from here to here. No one came up and shot this man. So I would like to put that out there. Even though the media is spinning it and making it seem like it was civilian on civilian, it was not. Thank you. All right. Uh, there's no way to verify that, I don't suppose. But, Glenn, and, and you can't be everywhere. You were at that protest. Have you heard was, this before? I, was, I, I, I have heard that. I was, not at, uh, I was not at the Omni, which is where that uh, shooting occurred. Um, I did interview and talk with uh, a member of the uh, clergy coalition who was there. Uh, she did not see who actually fired the shot, but she did raise some serious concerns about, uh, about the officer's conduct in the moments leading up to that shooting. And uh, she questioned whether, uh, whether uh, <laughs> they contributed to a, to a scene of chaos. Well, uh, John Cleggern, I agree. I was not out Tuesday night. I, I know the colleague uh, ministry you're talking about, and, and, and they said there was such profound confusion in that moment, no one could tell. What I can do is, is testify to what I saw the subsequent evenings, and um, that was uh, some good work on both sides of the protest to keep it peaceful. The police ceding the streets to the protesters. Um, and uh, what I thought to be some good collaboration on what a peaceful protest looks like uh, to uh, allow folks, as long as they were uh, not blocking the interstates, which can be a, a crazy kind of a situation, to have the streets and to speak their mind uh, in all sorts of ways. In the interest of transparency, and I don't know whether our reporters here, Lisa or uh, Gwen or Glenn, can answer this question, but it seems to me in the autopsy of that gentleman who was shot and killed, they would have recovered a bullet. Is there a way to identify where that bullet came from? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm... Okay. Well, well, maybe we should look into that, huh? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I will say I will say that uh, there have been uh, clergy in the in the community who have talked with the victim's family and encouraged them to make the autopsy report public. Yeah. Yes, sir. Good evening. Thanks for being here and thanks for letting us be here, Mike. At the beginning of the program, you said that a lot in the white community 
think that racism is over and we should move on. Uh, I'd like to be clear that there are a lot of us in the white community whose eyes are open enough to know that racism is not over. And that's, and that's why we're here and we want to help. So your white community and my white community might be different, but that's not the way I see it. Okay. And, and I will point out also for people listening on the radio who can't see you, and now that we brought the lights up, I can finally see you. <laughs> the majority of the people in this room tonight are white. Oh. Okay. Who's next? Oh, okay. Hi. Greetings, everybody. My name is Sadiq Singleton. Um, first, I want to say I think that we live in a country where we have this cognitive dissonance in this country. Um, and you asked Attorney Ferguson a question about the demographics changing around 2043. Will that bring about an equal balance of power? Well, in my opinion, no, because there was just a study that came out, I think, around August 9th, and it said it would take blacks 228 years from this point mm -hmm. to reach the wealth of whites. And a lot of our problems in our communities is the lack of economics. Um, we have great scholars, one being Dr. Claude Anderson, that knows the government inside out, things that would work for our community. And until we as a people, black people I'm talking about, start policing ourselves, start controlling our economics, start, pool, start pooling our resources, we're going to have these town hall meetings over and over and over. And that's what I'll, all I have to say. Sean Corbett, you were among the, laud the loudest applauders just a moment ago when he said that about policing ourselves. Um, I think that's what it has to come down to because when you, like, I, I, I sat here and um, I, looked, I listened to a lot of statistics being thrown around. But I know some educated black people, like educated black people. And if you look in our community, we have a lot of the resources that we need right here. And so it's up to us to pull together and get those resources. Okay, we have a problem with education. I donated my barbershop back to the community. I'm starting to, I'm I'm starting a tutoring program as of November. So there's a, there's a lot of things that we can do right within our community, and then it's okay to get help from other people, but at the end of the day, we're the ones with the problem. We're the ones that need the change. Our community is the one that needs the change. We have the power to change the community. So, like, until we realize that sitting around waiting to get saved, we ain't got saved yet. <laughs> we ain't got saved yet. I'm 37. I ain't, I, ain't, I ain't seen it. But I have seen people go to college. My son is the first one to go to college in my family. So, with that being said, there's a lot of there's a lot of small businesses. There's a lot of people like the clergy, like like this man, like we it all has to work together. But like as far as our community, we got a lot of stuff going on in our community, but we won't support this event because he does the same thing that I do. Nah, man, we got to almost get our social military in order because you have the army, you have the Navy, you have the Air Force. They all fight for that quote unquote democracy. So until we put our social media, um, our social military in effect to where, OK, y'all might do the same thing. Y'all might be our Air Force. Y'all three might be the same thing. Y'all might be our Navy. But we're all working for the same wow. thing, for the change that we need in our community. Wow. Thank you. add something to that oh yes go ahead I, 
I think we, we, we have to be very careful when we're talking about this notion of, of policing. I think African Americans have, have a rich history of policing themselves. Mm -hmm. let, let, me, let me place that into context. So when we think about notions of respectability, right? You think about someone like Dr. King and those that marched under the banner mm -hmm. of civil rights. They were policing themselves through respectability, mm -hmm. right? Their thought was that if we carried ourselves like citizens, then we might be treated as such. That didn't protect Dr. King nor his followers, mm -hmm. right? You also have the example of the uh, Black Panther Party, who was incredibly knowledgeable about the law and, and, and really sought to um, target um, uh, community policing as one of its core issues. And so I, I think we have to be very careful um, when, we, when we're talking about policing that it's so much broader um, than um, sort of the now. There's a rich, longer history of African Americans policing themselves, and, and I think we, we, we really have to look at this as a human rights issue that transcends. The, the onus of this should not be on African Americans is what I'm saying. Well, okay, well, let, 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 me, let me be clear what I'm saying. Not only do we have to be careful, we have to be honest and real. Because Dr. King and them fought for us to be able to take care of our own communities right now. They, he fought for my son to be able to get a college degree. So we have to, we, we don't, you don't give up. What I'm saying is, it's not time to give up, it's time to keep fighting. This fight is never going to go away. We're going to pass this fight on to our kids and our generation. So it's up to us to inform them and give them the right things to continue that fight. That's what I mean as far as policing ourselves. That's Sean Corbett for our listening audience at, on the radio with uh, Cops and Barbers and uh, Brenda Tyndall, the historian at the Levine Museum of the New South. Back to our audience. I'd like to um, kind of put an additional name in the room. So last month, well, in August, there was a shooting of a deaf person, Daniel Harris. He was unarmed. He was deaf. He got shot by a state trooper here in the city of Charlotte, and a month later, we have somebody else that gets killed again by a police officer. So I'm not surprised that the protest happened, and we don't talk about the fact that we have disabled people now that are being killed in the streets by our police. So with that, I have a question. So I think this is for the attorney. So Kerr Putney, in one of his early press conferences, um, he emphasized the fact that the National Guard that was dispatched was here to primarily take care of property, to guard the buildings, to guard the property, to be sure vandalism didn't happen. I need to understand there was a Supreme Court decision, it was the Warren v. District um, DC decision that seemed to imply that police do not have a duty to protect people because they cannot protect everybody. They can protect some, but not everybody, but they do have a duty to protect property, and they have a duty to protect people with whom they have a special relationship with. So I need the attorney in the room to explain that Warren v. DC decision so that we have clarity on what we can expect of officers, because we're assuming that they have a duty to protect us and they may not. James Ferguson, you're on. <laughs> I, I should have prepared myself to argue before the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, but seriously, I think it's a, I think it's a, a very, very on-point question, and I think it's not one that's answered in law. I mean, police have generally a duty to keep all of us safe, and part of that is protecting property. But I'm, I'm glad you asked the question because, in my own view, this is not an interpretation of the Warren case, but in my own view, a large part of the problem we have with our policing is that we do at times elevate property above human life. And police are actually taught, I'm told, uh, in their training sessions to answer this question to themselves when they're in a, a volatile situation. Do you want to go home to your family tonight? And if going home to your family means you have to kill someone, then that's what you have to do. The problem, as I see it, is that we have built up a culture of violence. Mm -hmm. And we resort to violence to try to solve almost every problem. War being uh, uh, one example, the death penalty being another, and many other examples. It seems to me that we could have a society built on the concept of the sanctity of human life. Mm -hmm. Recognizing there may be situations, which ought to be rare, where life has to be taken. But when we talk about training police, we do need more training in de-escalation. I think you mentioned that, uh, Glenn. Uh, we don't really train our officers to de-escalate before shooting. And the problem you raise there with, uh, let's say, the deaf person, he may have not even understood what the police officer said. Yeah. He may have not been able to comply because of a language barrier. What was this police officer taught about dealing with situations where you have a language barrier? And there have been numerous incidences where people who are mentally ill have been shot and killed by the police, mainly because they were mentally ill and the police didn't understand how to deal with them, and no one had trained the police officer how you de-escalate a situation with a mentally ill person. In this case, in the Scott case, uh, the wife was there on the scene. She was saying, don't shoot him. He's got TBI, and uh, he's not going to shoot you. He doesn't have a go all the things that she said, and apparently no one listened. No one said, well, we've got five or four officers here. Let one of them go talk to her and see what she can find out and see what she can do to help. So irrespective of what the Warren case may have said, we have got to move to building a culture of nonviolence to solve problems rather than a culture of violence to solve problems. Okay, who is next? Okay. Thank you, Michael. Um, I first have to admit if I sound a little funny, I'm a recovering Yankee who moved here a few years ago, so bear with me. Uh, quickly, um, we are not a monolith. We are Catholics, we're Presbyterians, we're Jews, we're Muslims. But if you've been raised, if you've been raised in a home or a school or Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, Cub Scouts, and you've been taught to hate people who look like me, the little innuendos, little cutting jokes. I never sat in a classroom with a black person 
until I was a junior in college. Figure that out. Okay, as I said, we got some different situations. I heard every negative remark, I heard every stereotype. But if they're hiring police who have been taught to hate you as a child before they even know it, maybe the sociology needs, a professor needs to answer this. How then can we move forward if we're still hiring these same people, putting them into urban areas that they don't know? How can we move forward from that point without getting a shot, even me, because I say, officer, I'm old enough to be your grandfather. Could you not speak to me in that tone of voice? I'd like a little respect. So is that going to get me shot? Because that's who I am at this point in my life. Thank you. Okay. Um, I came here tonight not exactly knowing what to expect. Um, I'm just an observer, but I listen to WFAE a lot on the radio. They're always on the forefront of things that are important to community, and so they're, they're only one area of the media. Um, what happened in Charlotte had other, thing, other media uh, speaking about it, and there are bits and pieces of the puzzle to me. And so I felt like coming here tonight to see if you guys could put some of those pieces together, you know, so it can make sense to me. Because actually it makes me really angry um, that this is still a reality. Um, but I know it is. You know, I know it is, but I'm just angry. You know, I, I don't know if I speak for anybody else, but I could just speak for myself. It makes me angry. Um, um, Mr. Ferguson spoke on it earlier. He touched on it. I didn't hear a whole lot of talk about it, but I think it should be explored further, this idea of supremacy. You know, this, this supremacy supports oppression, and the police are oppressing uh, a segment of the society, and they feel that it's okay to oppress a segment of society. We're a brotherhood of, of men, these people on this planet Earth. We're a brotherhood of men. We hire police officers to patrol this brotherhood of men, you know, to sort of keep us safe and civilized so we don't degrade back into being barbaric, you know, barbarous and savage and whatnot, but that doesn't separate them from being part of the brotherhood of men. They're still part of us. And so for them to have the idea that they're so superior and that everybody else is beneath them, where they can do this and they can do that and where they can kill where they want to and just do whatever they feel like doing, that's wrong. And I'm not surprised that there's no police officers here tonight because that knot that you were talking about, you were talking about earlier, when you get a knot in your stomach, when the uh, blue light is behind you. Both people have that knot. The man that's getting pulled over has a knot of fear, and the police officers have a knot of fear. And so when they engage, it's that fear that's talking to them, and it's that fear that very often makes the reaction turn out to be a negative reaction instead of something that's positive. They, it needs to be discussed further how to deal with human nature, because this is what the real problem is. You can't legislate human nature out of a human being. You can't legislate, there's no law that's gonna change a human being's nature. They have to deal with their nature, where they approach situations from a, from a position of peace, which is what I was looking for, like you said, building trust up there. I was looking for peace, where's the peace? You know, we need to go forward like looking for peace. Uh, that's all I want to say. Sean, I know you want to talk about that, but would you, when you jump in and talk about this, also talk about, if you have any stories to tell, about uh, successful transitions where you've been able to talk to an officer, where you've been able to talk to a young man in, in the African-American community and let them see each other as people and how that has changed things going forward. Um, well, let me address the brother to just talk, man. You're absolutely right. And I want to be clear to all of y'all, like, I don't, 
have like a doctorate or whatever. I'm just a regular person. I represent a whole demographic of your taxi cab driver, your, your regular everyday people. And I just happen to own a barbershop and care about my community. So we have real, like everybody knows in your salons and your barbershops, you have real life conversations. And we've came up to the conclusion. Those offices, all these divisions around here in Charlotte, the three top ranking officers, make them live in them communities that they police. Make them live right there. Let their kids go to the same schools that these kids that you're patrolling and policing. So that way, you'll be harder on your officers to make sure that they don't make them accidents. They don't make those mistakes because your family's accessible. Just like our family's accessible, you can't make a mistake and go home. Those days are over. If you're going to make a mistake, you're going to live right here and deal with it with us. Now, to answer your question... The stories that, 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 you, that you're asking, I'm going to give you a good story. And it's not really about a cop story or a citizen story. I, I cut every type of person's hair, like everybody, from pastors to people that live on the other side of the law. But when some of my clients that are on the other side of the tracks pick up the phone and call me and say, keep doing what you're doing, it's working. For people that, that, that are, their way of life is to not deal with the police. But then they say, you know what? keep doing it. Somebody got to say it. Somebody got to do it because we need change. And these are people from the other side of the tracks. Right. Now, I might now, he personally might not come and hug a police officer, but, you know, occupational conf conflict. But, you know, <laughs> but for him to say, you know what, keep doing what you're doing. Because it could easily be like, man, you mess with the police. Da, da, da. I mean, you know how I go. But I don't get that. So that lets me know that what I'm doing is working and we're working in the right direction, that we just need more work. Thank you. Uh, yes, my question is maybe for all of you. Um, I already know that the media plays a huge role in all of this. Um, what can be done, though, in conjunction with police training, community outreach, and everything that all of you are doing here tonight? Um, what, what do you think can be done about the way the media portrays and makes worse these situations like that we had two weeks ago? James Ferguson is making his way to a microphone. Yeah, let, let me just say that. I was, I, I've been listening to this conversation, and uh, at bottom, what we're really talking about is trying to build mutual respect. Mm -hmm. When we talk about police officers getting into the community, that's not new. I grew up in a community in Asheville where there were three black police officers in the whole city. And those police officers were in the community. They knew us, the children in the community. They knew us by name. They knew our families. And they knew that because they were in the community and they cared about us. And they didn't see themselves as and us, who's above everybody, to tell everybody what to do. But they were there to look out for everybody. And one way you do that is get to know the community you're in. It's very hard to kill somebody if you know them. Absolutely. It's easy to shoot that stranger there because it's just that stranger there. The media has a role to play. I mean, you know, you talk about fear. Well, if you look at the news every night, <laughs> and you look and see how violent the newscasts are and how everything you see on the newscast has some black man 
killing somebody or hurting somebody, hell, I'd be scared of a black man myself, <laughs> including myself. So it's really all about trying to, to build on mutual respect and to, to teach and train police officers not to act solely on fear, but to act on education, to act on knowledge, to act on understanding, to act on compassion, to try to diffuse a situation rather than resorting to violence like that. Very quickly, from those of you who work with police in this effort to build trust, is that, what, is that what's going on? Well, I have a police story. And it happened in 1972, 73. I was a uh, nine-year-old boy. It was a Sunday. I was at a school with some friends, and we broke into the school. We vandalized the school, stole money, painted the walls, and the police came up. It was a white police officer, and uh, I was arrested. And I could have become a statistic, but this white police officer called my mom, talked to her, and she told him, let him stay in there. <laughs> I'm coming to get him. Now, weeks later, I look up at my school, and here's this white officer coming to take me to lunch. Um, and over the next few months, every week or so, he'll stop by, young man, how you doing? Burger chef, a shake, whatever. The last time I saw him was uh, at my aunt's house. He was in his car, running somewhere, siren on. And basically, I tried to get his attention. He didn't see me. An hour later, the only police officer in Riviera Beach, Florida, who was shot and killed in the line of duty was my friend. Here's the point. We got to find a way to understand that this issue is not about so much bad cop, good cop. It is an issue of building community, as everyone here has said. But at the end of the day, I'm just hopeful that there are enough good-hearted folk who care for each other in this community and in policing that there's enough here to make a difference. Uh, because I could have been a statistic. I could not have gone on uh, if it wasn't for a cop reaching back to say, you know what, you are bigger than this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I never forget that. So uh, somehow we have to find a way to not just, with a broad brush, right. find a way to talk about policing, talk about reforms, but also to talk about the cops who every day are doing good work, that come to your barbershop, that do good work to really help build community and keep things going. We have two and a half minutes left. I'm, I'll be quick. Um, thank you guys so much for doing this. Um, my name's Andrea, and my question is we've talked a lot about policy changes and education and police training. What can we all as individuals do to make this happen? Do we, I have some ideas like writing letters to the editor, meeting with our senators, obviously voting. Um, what are some of the other things that we as individuals could do to actually make a difference? I think maybe for Susan, not yes. sure. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Well, so I would have two suggestions, right? Um, when we think about action that we can take, we've, we've heard a lot about implicit bias. Mm -hmm. um, it, 
I think change is going to happen on an individual level with these relationships that we're building, with stopping by and, mm. and checking on that young man mm. at the individual level. Every person in here is at a different place along a racial continuum, mm -hmm. um, whether you're black or white. And I think getting in touch with that, figuring out kind of what you know, what you don't know. You heard Reverend Matthews went to the Race Matters Dismantling Racism workshop. That's a two-day race analysis. It, it opens your eyes to a historical perspective mm -hmm. and allows you to begin examining your own stuff, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, that's on the individual level. That's that community building. Mm -hmm. But I also think there's a systemic level that we also need to address, mm -hmm. and that's the policy level. Mm -hmm. That's your senators. That's voting. Mm -hmm. But that's also changing these policies that are in place Police, police training, policing, mm. um, education policy, mm. you name it, mm. to begin to build a world that, that um, Attorney Ferguson describes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, can I, can I say something? Quick word? Very, very quickly, you have 20 seconds. Go ahead. Um, well, to piggyback off of what she says, she's absolutely right. So I have two quick things. One, I'm doing a voter's registration at my barbershop Friday and Saturday. So if you know anybody that needs to be registered, bring them by. And then the second thing, I'm in desperate need of tutors. I'm going to stay here, and um, we can swap emails. And my tutoring program will start in November. We're going to start one Monday out of the week, and it can grow bigger. But I need y'all help. Sean Corbett, along with Reverend Clifford Matthews and Reverend John Cleghorn, also Brenda Tyndall, Susan McCarter, James Ferguson, Glenn Birkins, Gwendolyn Glenn, and Lisa Worf. Thank you all for being part of this public conversation on Charlotte Talks on WFAE.